A world, even a comic book world, consisting of Spanish gibberish-speaking giant lizards, leatherhead football games, mobsters, friendly and non-friendly zombies, giant apes and werewolves, among much more dysfunctionality, would lead one to assume that what exists would be a guaranteed mess. Eric Powell, however, has proved that under the right guidance, it has the potential to be comic book gold. Through hard times, controversy, and good times, Powell has persisted and proven that his unconventional stories and plots have the ability to find a way to connect with readers. Welcome to House of Words, a podcast about writers, comics, and deeply dysfunctional plots. I am your host, Jason Moore Hardin, and I invite you to join us as we explore the rise and the bizarre world of Eric Powell's The Goon. Quote, I think you can't censor yourself if you're trying to be funny, because you can't be fake and funny. I totally believe that you can't try to make people happy and be funny at the same time, because, no matter what, you're going to offend somebody. End quote. Growing up in the rural South, Powell describes his childhood as good, although creepy, not on account of personal matters, luckily, but because there were dark woods and old sheds all around. It looked like the backdrop of some 70s slasher horror movie, he would later joke. Autumn in particular sticks out in his memory, trees being all scraggly and dead, the leaves on the ground, old ramshackle sheds and old barns he and his friends used to play in. That was the atmosphere that would later shape his mind, steer him toward the content he'd find himself fascinated by and inspire his own creations. He would naturally go on to develop a slightly twisted sense of humor, one that his older sister would take the brunt of. His room was right next to hers, so when she was a teenager and she would leave her room, he would sneak in and move this one specific doll around the room. First, it would be subtle, but soon the doll's movements were undeniable. When confronted by his sister about the fact, he denied it. His sister eventually threw out the doll, but coincidentally, it was Eric's job to throw out the trash. So when he saw the doll, he put it back in her room to an even greater reaction. Television became a big part of his childhood, with The Twilight Zone and The Andy Griffith Show being two of his favorites. He wanted to do special effects for big Hollywood productions at one point, but being from Tennessee and never having been out of state made this dream seem like an impossible one. Drawing was his most persistent artistic endeavor in his young life, and he has no recollection of a time when he wasn't drawing. In school, particularly in junior high and high school, he was known as the art guy. Drawing up logos for t-shirts and posters of friends who were in bands made him sought after, and it also motivated him to perfect his craft. He also felt that comics seemed more achievable because as a comic book reader himself, he knew that the creators of the books he was reading were sitting at home, writing or drawing or doing both, and would then send their pages into DC or Marvel Comics through FedEx. It just seemed to be something he could feasibly see himself doing. 
He didn't need a film crew to work. He didn't need a team of people. All he needed was a table, pencils, ink, and paper, and he could create a whole world all on his own. Being an introvert, it also seemed a lot more appealing and less stressful to sit by himself in his room making a book rather than going out and trying to do something else. The first artist that caught his attention was Bernie Wrightson, famous for drawing what is arguably some of the most important years of the comic Swamp Thing, among other comics. Eric's uncle had quite a collection of Swamp Thing comics in his basement, and Eric would go down there and play with his cousins and flip through the comics. The style automatically drew him in. The light work, the feathering, it ignited something within young Eric. After a period where he didn't read any comic books, a friend reintroduced him to them when he was a teenager. By this time, Frank Miller's The Dark Knight Returns had been published and comics had taken a turn for the more gritty. He began borrowing comics from his friend, borrowing the likes of Alien vs. Predator and Hard Boiled. Nothing seemed better to a teenage boy than crazy, uber-violent, oversexed comics. He didn't go to art school. Instead, he used his overly analytical sense and made his own exploration into the field. He studied on his own, taking deep dives into different types of art, not only comic book art, which he attributes to making him stand out from many other comic book artists. And that's not to say that he wasn't fascinated by the up-and-coming comic artists of the day, as Jim Lee and Todd McFarlane both made an impression on him. When he really started to consider pursuing a career within comics, he was torn between wanting to do his own characters and wanting to draw already famous characters. His first paying job was an assignment to work on Razor for London Night Studios. It felt like a big deal as he was finally getting paid for doing a comic. For a while, following this first gig, he even got to draw for some of the bigger companies within the world of comics, but ultimately, he found it unsatisfying and would soon create a character of his own to be reckoned with. Quote, I have a little notebook, and I get a funny idea and scribble it down. That's the great thing about the goon. If there's something I want to draw, the issue I'm working on now, I wanted to draw a giant demonic gorilla with glowing eyes. All right, I can work that in somehow. End quote. Though he hadn't given himself a deadline in regard to how long he would give himself to succeed within the industry, things suddenly became a lot more pressing when his girlfriend became pregnant right out of high school. For a while, he considered attending the Memphis College of Art, but with a baby on the way, he couldn't envision living a six-hour drive from home. Neither did he have the money to bring his girlfriend and child along with him and finally concluded that he would have to stay home and take on whatever artwork that came his way while making ends meet through various small jobs. A ton of rejection letters followed, but he didn't let it stop him. Though at times he did wonder if he really just sucked and couldn't see it himself. One particular example of this occurred after he sent some drawing samples to a publisher and received a letter. It was one of the first times that this had happened to him and he was naturally very giddy about it and wanted to make a good first impression. It was only a sample script, but it felt like the real deal to him at the time. 
He sat down and drew the pages as well as he could in the shortest amount of time possible. He really wanted to impress them. Upon completing the pages, he sent them off, hoping that they would be impressed with his devotion and hoping they would see that he was good under a deadline. Unfortunately, he was torn apart in the next letter, which told him that he sent the art back too fast, telling him, Why are you sending this back to me immediately? You should be working on this stuff. Another unjust criticism he was often met with was how editors representing major publishers would tell him that he should put his focus on either penciling or inking, but not both. Powell is thankful that he did both as it proved to provide food on the table in the times he had to take any jobs that came his way. Looking back, he sees just how much backwards thinking there was in the industry. His earliest memory of the goon is from simply thinking about the word goon. He was trying to conceive a creator-owned concept he could do, something that would help him show off the things he liked to draw and was therefore particularly good at. At the time, the character he came up with was somewhat of an ogre that had been sentenced to Earth on probation to hunt monsters. He drew a flat cap on the character, but it wasn't a 1930s-style flat cap. Instead, it was more like a punk rock look. He also had a leather jacket and long black hair. He thought the character looked quite cool, but ultimately, he didn't like it. Then one day, Sometime between 1994 and 1996, he was just doodling around, working on some stuff, thinking about all the things he liked and could envision putting into a comic book. These were gangsters, the 1930s, and several additional elements that would ultimately wind up in the book. The word goon popped into his mind again. He wondered if someone had already made a character whom was called Goon, Seeing as goon is a pretty common slang word for a bad guy, but, to his surprise, there was none. That day he began drawing this big, long-armed guy in a wife-beater with a flat cap on. And because no one else would dare give their character the name goon, he gave the character giant buck teeth, which he also concluded no one else would dare do. That first day, he did three little drawings on a piece of paper a full-body pose, and two profiles, one with the flat cap on and one without. He then did another drawing of the goon with his giant hand holding out a pistol. This was followed by a short synopsis for a story that was a lot more serious than the book ended up being. It was like Luca Brasi from The Godfather, except in reverse. It wasn't the thug who was assassinated. It was instead the boss and then he goes on a killing rampage to get revenge for his boss's death. Then he backpedaled, thinking, This is too serious. I want this to be funny and fun. I want to have fun drawing it. So he made it crazier. Five years later, Powell was working with publisher Avatar Press. He had everything concerning the Goon series planned out a year ahead, but after the release of the first comic book, Avatar declined to continue publishing the Goon. Following that, he had to wait for his contract with Avatar to expire before he could publish any more issues of the Goon. 
During that time, he did work on Dark Horse Comics, working on Buffy the Vampire Slayer comics as well as doing some inking for Marvel Comics. Then, almost as if it was the way fate intended it, all work dried up. It was a bleak time, and he even considered the chance that his career might be over. But something told him that he needed to pursue the concept of the goon. The first time around, the first three issues, only of which the first had been released, had been poorly produced. He was fresh as a creator and was still developing his art, but a year later, having gained more experience, he felt that there was something to be done with it, and most important, he liked doing the comic. He had come to like the characters and wanted to explore this developing world. With artwork drying up, Powell took a $5,000 loan from the bank. It was a frightening time as he had no idea as to how he would be able to pay it back. He put everything into resurrecting his character. He made a marketing plan and also planned ways to get the word out. Around the same time, he was doing some illustrations for a printer company that was trying to show off a new printer they had acquired. Instead of money, he told them that he wanted free printing and a deal was made. In order to make it legitimate, however, he felt that he needed a comic book publisher, so he started his own company and gave it the name Albatross Exploding Funny Books. The name came from him being a big Monty Python fan and wanting to come up with a name which had the same kind of crazy sound as Monty Python's Flying Circus. Also, by having the letter A at the beginning of the name of your company would have it placed at the head of the catalog. He already had exploding funny books in mind, but needed something that started with an A. The saying, albatross around your neck, occurred to him, and seeing as taking out a loan with little idea of how to pay it back was the albatross around his neck, it was settled. He then got a friend of his from high school to pose as the fake publisher, and was on his way. So with the ton of his comics printed up for free, in color nonetheless, he sent them out to anywhere and everywhere he could think of. He figured that as long as he broke even for each issue he published, he would at least be able to keep going for three issues. To his great surprise, it did better than break even. He even earned some money on it. Word had rapidly circulated online, getting a buzz from the comic book community, which led to a rapid snowball effect. After the fourth issue was released, Dark Horse Publishing contacted him, telling him that they wanted to do the book together. He knew that he had the option to continue to self-publish, sell a few thousand copies, and keep all the money. But at the same time, he was realizing how hard it was to do everything all by yourself. It was not only writing and drawing the book, but it was having to coordinate distribution, the printing, advertising, and many other tasks all on your own. He wanted to focus on his art, and Dark Horse was also, at the time, publishing most of the books he liked, and felt it would be cool to have his title among other books such as Hellboy, Sin City, and Madman, among others. The high-risk gamble on himself had paid off. On issue number two of the Albatross releases, he found that he was finding his footing within writing. It was the first buzzard story, and the first time he felt that he'd struck a good balance between the crazy weird humor and the more serious elements of the series. When he went through the story after having completed it, 
and thought to himself, Hmm, that wasn't horrible. He knew he was on to something. Another major turning point for the series was when in 2007, Powell put the series on hold in order to work on a full book titled Chinatown. It would be his most ambitious endeavor thus far, and he's later stated how he was wary about going to a darker place, and on top of that, excluding humor. With the strong tale it told, he didn't feel it would be right to chop up the story. It would lose the emotional impact, he reasoned, if the reader would have to wait a month or two between the issues. Chinatown would explore the origins of the facial scars on the titular goon's face. From the first time he wrote and drew the character with the scars, the questions concerning them came to light. Where did they come from? he wondered. From that came the loose idea that the scars had originated in Chinatown. The details were vague at the time, but they would pull the story forward and it would snowball rather than be a planned out plot. Upon the release of Chinatown, he somewhat expected the response to be, go back to doing crap jokes. You're not a writer. Don't try to write seriously. I want to see funny. But luckily, his gamble on himself once again paid off and the fans loved the story. Concerning his writing routine and creative process, Eric's days start off slow, sitting down by the table and doodling around a panel in order to get warmed up. He doesn't do sketches on a sketchbook, feeling that it's wasting time. Instead, he goes straight for the panel. He usually skips around between pages, but doesn't do anything major until later in the day. The sketchbook does, however, come out at random times, for compulsive drawings. If he's going somewhere, a bookstore, or an art store, he always brings a sketchbook with him. Now, depending on what he's doing, whether it's drawing or writing, he has his own routine for each. If he's writing, he needs total silence. That means no TV and no music not even as background noise. He needs to focus fully on the task at hand, or else he gets distracted. And when he's laying things out, meaning drawing the initial sketches and setting out how the pages will look, he is more flexible and allows himself to have some music in the background, though it's usually something he's listened to before and doesn't distract him from the script drawing process. When he's inking, applying watercolor or tightening up pencil work, He'll listen to audiobooks or the news or an audio commentary for a movie. What differentiates him from many other cartoonists is how he works script-wise. He doesn't work from a full script. Instead, he'll go through and kind of map out the story. When he has the layout done and knows what he wants the book to be about, for instance, if he wants the goon to wrestle alligators, he goes through the story trying to write all the dialogue as he hears it in his head as if he's listening to the conversations in real time. In his opinion, it really helps as he doesn't need to jump back and forth between breaking down the page and writing a little dialogue, and then breaking down some more, and then writing some more dialogue. Instead, he devotes fully to the dialogue, setting it up as completely as possible, and then he uses the dialogue as a sort of thumbnail. He doesn't have a script which tells him how many panels are on each page. Instead... It's just dialogue, which means that he's still writing the script as he's doing the layouts. This, he feels, gives a better, more organic final product. The laying out process is very structured, 
With the schedule worked out so he knows how many days he'll need to draw each page and how long it will take to ink, and that way have a pretty clear estimate about when a page, and ultimately the book, will be completed and good to go. If he has everything laid out and has the dialogue in order, he usually spends around three to four weeks to complete an issue. That being said, he admitted in 2012 that up until that point, he hadn't completed a single issue of the goon that he didn't wish he had more time to do on account of there being something wrong with all of them. Which is why he feels that his paintings, which wind up on the cover of the collected issues, are so much better than what is inside of the covers, as he simply had more time to work on them. Eric Powell and his goon have won six Eisner Awards and been nominated an impressive 14 times. Additionally, it was confirmed in July of this year, 2022, that the movie that has been in development since 2008 will finally come to fruition through Netflix. He has continued to grow as an artist and a writer and recently wrote and illustrated the true crime story that was the life of Ed Gein in the graphic novel did you hear what Eddie Gein done? Along with true crime author Harold Schechter, it was released under his own publishing company, The Resurrected Albatross Exploding Funny Books, which is also the home of future releases of The Goon. He has stated he never worries about running out of ideas for the series as it wasn't ever a concept book. It was and is simply a story centered around its characters. In his words, the first time you see them, you get the gist of what they're about. You have the big burly guy and a little mean looking sidekick with beady eyes, and you can almost hear the conversations already. So he could take these two characters and plop them into any scenario he could see fit and just let them run free. Later he would add, there's not going to be an end to the story because I don't want there to be. When I'm 70 years old and I want to do a The Goon comic, I can just sit down and do a comic and I'm not screwing up any kind of continuity or anything. As usual, let me leave you with a quote from the artist himself. A lot of people can't handle insecurity. They're insecure about that they're doing and they quit, whereas I'm really insecure about it. I think I suck and I don't want to show my work off, but at the same time, I'm internally competitive and striving to do better. End quote. Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and will spread the word about the podcast. Once again, I have been your host, Jason Nimoa Harden. We at House of Words ask that you please consider helping to make this show easier to produce and more frequent by contributing on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash houseofwords or paypal.me slash houseofwordspodcast. Alternatively, you can subscribe and encourage others to subscribe to our YouTube page, House of Words Podcast. Every little bit helps more than you might think. Until next time. Keep turning those pages. House of Words is written and produced by Crystal M. Sanchez. Narrated and written by me, Jason Nemore Harden. And music by Creature9 and Wood. 
All rights and ownership belong to Christo M. Sanchez and Jason Nimor Harden. <laughs>